Welcome to the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast, where successful dental pros and anyone who values the power of a smile can get an edge in the dynamic worlds of healthcare and business. Hosts Chuck Cohen and Rick Cohen speak with top influencers in the world of dentistry and explore essential tools, trends worth your time, and solutions that help you practice smarter. Welcome. It's my pleasure to welcome Marco Vujizic from uh, the ADA Health Policy Institute. Uh, Marco, we're so flattered and so happy that you've been able to carve out an hour for us on uh, for the podcast. And uh, I just want to go through your quick bio and um, just read through it. Uh, Dr. Marco Vujizic is responsible for overseeing all of the association's policy research activities. Prior to joining the American Dental Association in 2011, he was senior economist with the World Bank in Washington, D.C., where he directed the Global Health Workforce Policy Program. He was also a health economist with the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. He is a visiting assistant professor at Tufts University in Boston. Dr. Vujizic obtained his PhD in economics from the University of British Columbia and a bachelor's degree in business from McGill University in Montreal. Uh, thanks once again, and uh, we're going to have a good time in the next hour really talking about um, dentistry, the economics of dentistry, and I'm very interested to learn about how you, um, how you came to dentistry and how, how, how all of that occurred. So first and foremost, where, where did we find you? Where does this podcast find you? Where are you today, physically? So I'm in, I'm in Chicago. First, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to discuss kind of where things are going, big picture in dentistry. Uh, but I'm in Chicago. Um, so I've been at the ADA, as you mentioned, for, I guess, almost a decade. Um, but the, the route here has gone all over, uh, all over the world, frankly. So I'm Canadian. I mean, I grew up in Toronto. Um, but as you mentioned, I studied economics and I really loved school. I, I, I went, I guess, all the way to a PhD. Um, but I worked in healthcare policy uh, my whole career. Um, but much, much broader things than dentistry, like large scale health reform. I mean, I've, I've worked on health reforms all over the world in several regions. And dentistry honestly came somewhat by chance. I was looking for a career change. I was based in Washington, DC, doing a lot of travel. Um, had small kids and just wanted a lifestyle change. And my wife's family's in the area here. And I had never really looked at dentistry and then when I kind of looked at the ADA position and started learning a bit more about dentistry, I thought, you know, wow, there's a lot of really interesting policy questions here that could really use some solid research, right, of the kind that I was interested in. Sure. Uh, so as, as in all things, it's a bit of luck, it's a bit of timing, it's a bit of the right people at the right time, but it's been really interesting um, and I've had a chance to build out a great team here at the ADA and the Health Policy Institute. Um, they're, they're a great cast of characters and scientists and researchers to work with. Um, so no, no week is boring in this world, as you know. No question. And my background is IT. So I, for, for many years, I led the IT department at, uh, at Benco. And still far and away, my favorite, I should, maybe shouldn't say this publicly, but I love the programmers. I, I started as a programmer myself, and um, I, I've just always uh, done very well with programmers. I, I enjoy 
uh, spending time thinking yeah. w the way they think. So I can completely relate to that. Um, I want to take back before you found dentistry or dentistry found you. Um, you spent some time at the World Bank. And um, I think many people don't know what the World Bank does. And so I thought it would be useful for a minute or two just to talk about what the World Bank is, what does it do, and, and what did you do for the World Bank? So it, the bank it, within World Bank refers to a financing arm, right? So um, it lends to governments, right? So it's not a private sector operation. It lends to governments. And part of that becomes uh, tied to doing large-scale reforms in all sorts of sectors, right? So you'll have World Bank projects that focus on building out road networks and transportation. I worked in healthcare, right? So part of what we were trying to do was partner with countries to, you know, do better health policy um, and not just kind of build facilities and clinics and hire healthcare workers, but like, how do you, how do you organize a healthcare system? Something like the Affordable Care Act, right? Those kind of large health, health systems reforms, very big, very long-term. Uh, we would kind of assist countries with how to set that up, right? And my particular role focused there on health workforce issues. So, you know, I, I always remember a, a project we were doing in, in Liberia, uh, post-war, helping to rebuild the country. Um, and we were trying to figure out like, okay, how do you get healthcare workers to rural areas? It's a problem every country faces. I mean, in the US here, the OECD, you name it, right? Um, but I think the important thing to know about me is like, I, I am not an academic. I don't enjoy the kind of ivory tower type of very wonky research for journals. Uh, I'm not a politician, so I don't know that world intimately. But the space in between, like how do you use evidence and data in research to help policymakers at the federal or state level, like make better decisions, right? So that's really where, like that's why I felt, you know, I happened to be working internationally there. Um, I happened to be working on health workforce issues, but I kind of like a utility player, right? In, in any sort of policy problem where I feel I could help bring complicated data and all sorts of imperfect research. Like how do you use that to help somebody make a better decision that ultimately affects people's lives, right? Like, so that's where, so that, that was my role at the World Bank, but I kind of, you know, I brought that with me to what we're doing in dentistry, right? Like a big part of what the Health Policy Institute does, my team, um, is we try to, produce kind of the best evidence and answer important policy questions. And, you know, people can take data, they can accept it, they could ignore it, they can challenge it, they could, you know, use it in any way they want. That's not our purview, but we want to be able to say, look, if you're interested in this problem, like why aren't more people going to the dentist, right? There's an interesting problem. And what's the solution to that? You need good research to tell you kind of what, what does the evidence say? So you're not kind of designing solutions that aren't really targeted to the problem. So a complicated way to say, I really enjoyed my time um, at the World Bank. I think probably the best thing was just seeing all sorts of 
parts of the world and really being able to, to work on local problems and just to kind of, to, to, to just give you perspective on life, to see how, how, how different people live. And, you know, I worked in some very high poverty settings and uh, it's just, it was just a great life experience. When the ADA set up the health policy initiative, um, and uh, which is really, I mean, I th could, would you describe that as a think tank? I would. Um, and so I think you just described your job as, and your, your team's job as a team that puts forth statistics and then lets the universe kind of figure what they will from those statistics. But it's not the sense that I get. I get the sense that people call uh, Dr. Vujicic and they want to know not just the statistics, but what your spin on them is. Not spin is not the word, but it's, it's not just presenting the numbers. It's also presenting a thorough analysis. I, I would imagine you're in the position you're in because you're a numbers person who can also communicate extremely well, which is not so common. And so you can speak in front of a crowd, you can communicate super well, you can lobby, you can do, and that's probably that. That's my bet as to as to how um, why you're in the job that you're in. And so I I wonder how complicated and how challenging might that be in an organization like ADA, where you'll never please all of the people all of the time. So I'm curious to to hear about the the politics, if you don't mind sharing, of of presenting numbers that may not be so popular and opinions that 100% of people won't agree with. Um, yep. How do you navigate that? So first, that's to me the exciting and challenging part of the work that I really like, right? So I wanna, I think there's two aspects to the question, which is a great one, by the way. And, and I'm gonna use some of your taglines like on my LinkedIn profile, I love that. Right? <laughs> it's not just the data, it's like, what's the data telling you, right? What's the storyline? Um, and so there's, there's two aspects of your, of your question there, right? So one is data do not clearly say X, Y, Z, like it's messier than that, right? Like we're not in a, a, a perfect science profession, right? This is, this is social sciences. We're trying to understand why people behave a certain way or why we have this outcome. So one part of the challenge is how do you take imperfect, partial, messy data and weave that into a storyline, right? So that's, that's what I really feel is a core strength of what I, what I bring, frankly. Um, and, and that to me is also just professionally rewarding, right? So it's important to take a bunch of studies or a bunch of data and tell you, okay, well, Marco, big picture, like what does this mean? or what, who should be concerned about this, or what, what's actionable within this research that you've been doing, yeah? or your team's been doing. Um, so that part is, is one aspect of, of, of your question. The second is then, how do you handle answers or perspectives that maybe ruffle feathers or don't sit tight with certain audiences, right? And there, I really, I mean, I feel an important part of kind of me being at the ADA is the support of our leadership in saying the Health Policy Institute, go put this out. Like, even if it doesn't agree with what maybe our board members think or some of our councils or some of our other stakeholders, 
um, our credibility lies in us being able to say, look, this is what we see in the evidence. We're not saying go do this, go do that in response, but we're giving you our perspective on kind of what the data are saying. And I know we'll talk about it, but the data are telling a pretty clear story like on where dentistry is going. Um, and I think that's important. And I really, I, I do wanna give a shout out to our leadership within the ADA. I know it's not, it's not easy, right? For especially people that aren't like data scientists, right? To totally. hear somebody say something that like just goes against their personal experience or against what they're seeing in their practice or against kind of, you know, 30 years of what the status quo has been, let's say, right? Like that's not easy. You know, I, I've, one thing I've learned kind of in, in my role as, as senior leadership in the ADA is like, you know, not everybody thinks like you and certainly not like an economist, right? <laughs> Um, so it's important to be sensitive to that. And a lot of people interpret evidence and data in different ways. So all you're describing there is what I really enjoy about this job. It's not a question of putting a paper out and there it is. It's like, okay, what does this mean for different stakeholders? And if this goes against what something was 10 years ago or what a lot of people are saying is their personal experience, like how do you give context to that, right? Um, so I don't know, I've just, it's a, it's an important part and all the folks in HPI are, we're very true to the research and data and that's kind of who we are. And I really, a shout out to the ADA leadership for really backing us. Um, I, I think that that is so cool. And I, I think, um, the rest of the world and so the, the rest of the world doesn't work that way in, in increasingly that, that I've seen. And so really hats off to the ADA governance to, um, to nourish that. I mean, you're hearing about professors that are fired for uh, yeah. saying one yeah. thing or another. Um, and what winds up happening, or people fired from their jobs or news reporters or whatever, sometimes for good reason, but sometimes um, they're just trying to stimulate discourse. And talk doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, look, within reason, you know, we, healthy discourse is a big part of what makes America great. And so um, I think that what what is happening increasingly is that people are afraid to say what they feel in their in their hearts and minds. And my view is um, within within reasonable bounds, share what you think and feel and, and there'll be a variety of opinions. And at the end of the day, the outcome will be the outcome. But the fact that they encourage um, the API to, or the H, the HPI to, um, to really um, present the data as you see it and uh, present analysis on it as you feel it in your heart, um, regardless of whether or not it works for or against the status quo. I think that's very rare and, and, um, and definitely worthy of appreciation. So hats oh, off thanks, to the ADA. Thanks for it's good to see others also recognize that and value it. But you know, the old, the old joke about, you know, how people use data with, uh, you know, like the drunkard using the lamppost for support <laughs> rather than illumination, right? So, and I've also, another thing we get critiqued on is an interesting story that kind of you're alluding to, right? So a lot of times I get critiqued on how people use our research. And I'm totally constantly having control. to say, like, look, 
people cherry pick facts out of our reports all the time that they want to focus on or that support their point of view. I, like we don't control that, right? But it's very interesting how, oh, why is the HPI saying X, Y, Z? And it's like, that's not what we're saying, right? We're saying that this is the facts, right? And then the fact that other stakeholders kind of a lot of times misinterpret what we say, misconstrue it, cherry pick to support their view. Like I've had to learn that that's not our purview, right? Like what, just like you were saying, we put it out there, we give our opinion, our context, but others may disagree and that's fine. Others may selectively use our work, that's fine too. Um, we're not in charge of how the consumption of our knowledge goes, but of course, to your point, it's very important. It's a core value of myself and my team that we, we are true to the evidence. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I, I want to take it uh, now to the pre-COVID situation in dentistry. Um, there was, um, you know, you, you presented a case which was very interesting for, I think it was three or four years before COVID, um, in that um, the, the seniors were the main growing dental segment. And of the seniors, the higher income uh, was the, the highest utiliz a higher utilization than the lower income, but seniors together was pretty much the only increased utilization story in dentistry. Um, if I remember, do I have that right? The children were about uh, solid, and then the declining segment was somewhere in the mid-teens through the mid-50s. Do I have that about right? Roughly right, yeah. 19 to 64-year-olds generally as a group, declining dental care use seniors rising, children flat, exactly. And so that was the, that was the story pre-COVID. And when you look at COVID and its um, discrimination against older people, um, and older people uh, have much more reason to uh, stay safe, avoid the dentist, avoid treatment. Um, and, you know, it could also be that the higher income people are also the, have, have a, uh, better set of education and maybe even more careful than the, than the uh, lower income people. I'm wondering if, um, if, if post COVID, the picture that has been painted pre COVID, where, what are your thoughts on that? It's a great point. We're, we're looking at that. We don't have any results yet uh, along the lines of what, what you're saying. Right. But, but what, what we do know, right, is COVID is disproportionately affecting vulnerable populations, right? Minorities, low-income populations. The aspect of the seniors is interesting that you raise, right? Just because they're a higher risk group for contracting COVID, um, just because of comorbidities, et cetera. So your hypothesis, I would say, carries some weight. Now, we don't have the numbers yet to assess, and we're certainly not in post-COVID yet, mm. right? But it's something we're looking at. Um, and we've been tracking patient volume throughout the pandemic. We've done it in aggregate terms. So we haven't looked specifically at like low income patients versus high income or age groups of different populations. We don't have that level of refinement yet in our analysis, but we're getting there. So what, what are the other things you're looking at um, in these times? And what are some of the other trends that are kind of formulating? So there we've certainly seen that capacity like is down, right? So our survey data, we've asked uh, dentists 
you know, in your practice, what was the maximum patient load you could see pre-COVID and what is it today, right? And it's been a significant reduction. And that's purely because of two reasons. Number one, it's the new uh, care protocols and the new recommendations, you know, require spacing out and more, uh, more precautions, more cleaning, et cetera, disinfecting. So there's less capacity in the system anyway. Mm. And also there is an issue with staffing, right? We're not back to full staffing. And part of that is because a lot of the dental team members, uh, hygienists in particular, there's a share that's reluctant to come back. Mm. So to me, the production side potentially is going to, I don't know if it's permanent, but at least in the near term, I think we're at a lower capacity level. Now, what does that do to profitability and the sustainability of smaller practices in particular versus DSOs, I'm not sure, right? So the costs have gone up because of the PPE. Your throughput is down, your efficiency is down, your productivity is down. Um, that's, you know, we've certainly had government support like with the PPP program and the, um, the recent provider relief fund, et cetera. So that's helped kind of buoy up the finances of practices. But eventually, I think those resources will, will dry up, right? So I don't know in the near term whether we're going to see like a, an increase in like practice consolidation. Um, our data certainly don't suggest that there's like an imminent retirement wave or a bankruptcy wave at all. Like things are looking pretty good on that. Like 99% of practices have reopened. Hmm. Right? So we haven't seen any sort of exits. Of, of dental, of dentists or dental practices. But again, with this steady state of 80 to 85% volume for the next, let's say year, um, and reduced capacity and higher costs, I don't know how that's gonna shake out in terms of, of like, I don't know, will some practices be acquired or will we see maybe some retirements? But we will be the first to know it. That's mm -hmm. a great thing about, we put in a data system and you, you know, uh, we're tracking data every two weeks from every two weeks from thousands of dental practices. So we'll know. We'll know when it happens. Interesting. Good. Um, in uh, in 2018, you wrote an article in the in in the Jada uh, called "Our Dental Care System Is Stuck." Oh yes. That um, so it it happens that that's in the first. Google page now under your name. So I'm, my first question is, did you have any idea that you were writing such an important article that would, uh, it's, it's an evergreen article. Um, you know, Google obviously finds it to be still the, the most relevant article you've written. Um, and it really did create a lot of discussion. And so I'm wondering first, when you wrote that, did you have any idea that uh, it was gonna have the impact that it had? No, <laughs> I've, I must recognize I'm, I'm, it's bad for an economist to say this, but I'm not a great predictor. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff I get the team excited about and we got to put this out, we got to put it out and nobody reads it. And then there's other stuff where I'm like, oh, it's interesting, let me collect these thoughts. And then it turns out to be something that actually had a lot of traction. So in full disclosure, no. I, I, but I'm glad, I'm glad it did generate um, a lot of debate and discussion. 
I love the article. I, I don't know I mean, what, what what was your initial reaction to it, if I can ask you. Was it of uh, my first reaction was I can't believe you wrote that. Okay. Because yeah. well controversy, right? Yeah, because I would think that um, the the again it, the fact that the ADA has put you in a position where you can write what you think and no matter what it is, um, I think is is fabulous. I mean, you're pointing out some real problems with the profession, which I happen to agree with. I recognize that others might not. And certainly, you know, in any system, uh, the system works for some people and doesn't work for others. Take the business system. That works for me. I mean, I, I, um, I got into this business thanks to the hard work of my father and grandfather. Um, and my brother and I are now running um, a, a dental business, which we're very proud of. Th that, that works for us. Um, others may look at the position we're in and think something like, well, you know, they didn't earn it or it's because of their father or whatever, whatever. Um, but for us, the status quo works. And I think that in dentistry, there's also people that the system works for right. and what, just will do anything to keep the status quo going and people that it doesn't work for. Um, maybe it's the people that um, simply can't afford care or can't think they can't afford care or whatever. Um, but, you know, and so I think that um, the, the article did, it, it, it had some topics that, that um, um, a more political person might have been afraid to write. And so that, my in, initial reaction was that. But just to keep the listeners up to speed, do you mind, can you summarize that in say 90 seconds, the article? Sure, I think one is two, two aspects let's take quickly. One is problem identification, right? So I think that the gist of the, the article starts out with saying, look, where are we today in the US? Like on dental care use and dental access, right? And we found that, you know, like you said, like generally middle to upper income households are doing great in terms of being able to afford dental care and going to the dentist, right? There's populations that have been lagging. So there's basically, you know, there, there's rising income disparities in dental care use among like adults and seniors, not kids, right? Kids, we've done a lot of public policy to address that. And then I basically said like, look, if, if we feel this is a problem and it's a big if, right? So if we feel this is an issue and we want to change it, if this is not our vision, if our vision is not only half the population going to the dentist regularly, you have to face up to the fact that the data suggests that there are certain solutions that would work and others that would not, right? So definitely there's an affordability challenge. So one of the things I suggested was we have to think about how do you expand coverage, right? How do you make dental care more affordable? And look, the providers rail, a lot of providers rail against this. Like say, how can you say there's an affordability challenge when people are buying cell phones, going on vacations, have nice tires on their car, and then they're not getting dental care. I, Tattoos okay, is the big one I hear. That's a values debate, right? But you got to understand in, in the medical space, that's not how it goes, right? So anyway, to be debated, but my recommendation or my, my suggestion for potential action was, look, expand coverage and fix it. Right? The dental insurance model to me is largely broken. It was appropriate 20, 30 years ago. It is not innovative. Right? So I'm not just saying take the broken mousetrap and do it. We can do a lot more. But anyway, that's one area. The other big area is to focus on like 
measuring things that matter. And this is something that's maybe wonky, but it's actually really important, right? So I, as an outsider coming into dentistry, I was really shocked at how we measure oral health, I say inadequately. We don't measure the right things. Like as a patient, what do I care about, right? I care about, you know, mouth comfort and aesthetics and I can choose speak smile. And we don't really measure any of that, right? And so part of that is let's fix reimbursements so it rewards some of that. And again, here, that's very controversial, right? Like how do you, right now we pay for procedures. My suggestion is we consider some model that rewards providers for following appropriate care-based, uh, evidence-based care protocols. Let's reward providers for improvements or maintenance of oral health, et cetera. Not just what they're doing. Yeah? Um, and then, you know, another big one is think about kind of building bridges between the dental community and the larger primary healthcare community. Mm. I think that's a big one too. Um, lots of opportunities there. But look, these are ideas and you said it, right? Like this is what I feel we should consider. And, you know, it's not, people have other ideas too. And I think you, you said it very nicely, right? How can we generate debate and how can we put evidence and ideas forth to generate this kind of debate? And I'm, and I'm glad it, the article did, because that's the point, right? It's like, let's get talking. Right on, right on. Has anything changed in your I'm mind? Sorry, that was more than 90 N seconds. No, that's okay. That's exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. Uh, has anything changed uh, in your mind since, t since writing that? Um, it's, it's about three year, uh, two, year, two and a half years later. Great question, um, yeah. What's changed? I, honestly, I think there's some movement on these aspects. I think that's an interesting thing to me to sit back and by no means are we doing any sort of attribution here. Okay. Mm. <laughs> like other people had these ideas before me. Um, but like, it's interesting, for example, on the measuring of outcomes, there's an international group that was put together, ICHOM out of Harvard, they got together a global panel of experts and they recently published. These are important things to measure in terms of outcomes in oral health. And it's very different from my perspective in terms of like what a clinician might just focus on, right? So it's not, it's not like probing depths for periodontitis, but it's also things like how comfortably can you eat food, right? And do you feel okay going on a job interview in terms of your, your mouth and teeth, how they look, uh, et cetera. So to me, like there's been some baby steps on that area of measuring outcomes. Um, I also feel on the, on the dental benefits slash insurance expansion, I feel like the Medicare debate has heated up. And this is pre-COVID, right? I think now things are in flux, but mm. you know, certainly pre-COVID, I mean, there were many more bills coming through Congress kind of suggesting or proposing to put a dental benefit in Medicare, right? So I think that's, that's like a big, big reform to kind of address that expanding dental insurance coverage. Um, so I think there's, I don't know, I think there's traction. Some of these things move faster than others. Um, so, but have my ideas changed? Not, not that much. Um, and it's not that I haven't reflected on it. It's just, I feel... I feel there hasn't been anything big environmentally that's changed. 
Now, I haven't thought, what has COVID done to all of this? Right. Has it right. kind of reinforced the need for these changes or has it said, now's not the time for those? Honestly, I haven't, I haven't thought through that. I'm going to shift gears a little bit <clears throat> and ask you this. Uh, really two questions in one, but both related. If you were a 35-year-old dentist, what would you be worrying about today? First for the short term, and then secondly, for the five to 15 year horizon. So on the short term, I feel there's a huge upside in addressing the convenience issue, right? So we know from the research, like especially for younger demographics of the population, like cost and convenience are the main issues that keep people from going to the dentist or completing their treatment plan, et cetera, right? So to the extent that practices can invest in things like, uh, you know, teledentistry platforms, um, a simple, you know, on your mobile phone, you can make an appointment, you don't need to call anybody, right? Kind of like the open table of dentistry. I feel there's a space for that innovation, right? Um, mobile dentistry, but not like the van going to rural Appalachia. It's more like the really sleek, fully digital mobile dentistry unit going to dot coms mm -hmm. and sitting in their parking lot because 30 year old, super bright, fairly high educated, wealthy patients are just not in the habit of calling and taking time off work to go to a dental practice, right? To go for a dental visit. So in the short term, I feel investments in these convenience um, issues or convenience enablers are gonna pay off, right? And, and that's a mixture of you know, IT investment and maybe some infrastructure change, um, partnering with firms for their employees to kind of do this, this mobile unit that I'm talking about. Um, I feel that's a huge, a huge upset in the short term. You know, uh, just to interrupt a, you real yeah. quick, uh, my father, who's 85 um, and very vibrant and active and active in the business, but through, through, for as long as I remember, even in the 1970s, when a dentist would talk about, you know, what is, what are the, you know, complain about uh, business or whatever, almost always the first thing my dad would suggest is, work evenings and weekends. And uh, um, because so many patients would flock to a dentist that has Saturday hours or evening hours. And, uh, and anyway, it's, it's interesting how so much has changed, but so much is still the same. So uh, I really love the call out. We, we did some research a few weeks ago on this particular question. It really surprised me, right? So we found that one out of six dental practices had extended their office hours mm. and one out of six had reduced them and the rest in the middle had been the same, right? So that kind of washes out. So I would have thought that there'd been way more extended hours, just flexibility and everybody's home life is also. Sure. And dig out of the hole that April and May. That's right. right. But it's not happening and we didn't get to why. Now, I don't know. Obviously it's, it's physically more taxing to practice, right? Because of the, the masks and the face shields. 
I don't know if emotionally it's also, as you said, I think the patient base is there, right? Um, but anyways, it's interesting. I was surprised because you were talking about extended office hours. I guess generally I would expect way more practices to be open. And this gets to kind of, a, we'll get back to kind of the longer term, but it gets to this issue of like even the change I recommended, right? The convenience and the mobile platforms and, and technology and, and, you know, mobile services, yeah? Like it's hard for very small practices to do that. And I think this is a theme we'll, we'll maybe get back to, but I feel like a lot of the changes I see on the horizon are really gonna make kind of small independent practice tougher compared to larger groups that can invest in that. Like think about even the extended office hours, right? If you have two dentists in your practice, that's harder to do than if you have 20 dentists across four or five sites, mm. right? You can kind of schedule things easier that way. So we'll get to that. But I don't know, longer term, I think this issue of, of I see a big opportunity with this collaboration with non-dental providers like primary care integration, right? So we know, we know there's a lot of diabetics going to physician offices that aren't getting referred into periodontal screening, right? Just because we don't have large scale links, right? We don't have, you know, data systems that talk to each other. We have kind of dentistry a little bit on its island on the delivery side. And yes, there's lots of stories of, okay, I'm a dentist. I went across the street to the couple of pediatric practices and did lunch and learns. And now we refer, that's fine. But I'm talking like large scale healthcare systems, right? Like the Geisingers of the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Mayos um, here, Aurora, uh, North Shore, like in my area here. If they were to meaningfully refer patients to dental offices and have dentists do health screenings and take blood pressure and refer patients the other way. Like that to me, if dentists can make that happen, that's a huge boom. Mm. You're going to get a lot more patients into care, a lot more business, but it's also going to really reposition dentists in terms of like the value they bring, right? If a dentist now can avoid heart attacks, help avoid heart attacks because they're connected with the medical system and doing some basic screening, like that now changes how society looks at a dental practice. In my view, we're not there yet at all, large scale. I would say there's some experimentation, but if you tell me like the next five year horizon, I think that's a big, big potential play that a lot of younger dentists should be thinking about. Hmm. And again, we're back to difficult for a small practice to do this. I wanna recognize this, right? Easier for a very large DSO to do that type of collaboration. So I think here, I don't know, I'm a little bit telegraphing where I see the practice models trending, but I think because of these changes and these opportunities, I do think that we're gonna see more large group practices and less solo and small group dentists. The last data that I looked at, uh, and I'm sure you, you probably have a different number, but I think it's close to 20% plus or minus of uh, dentistry that's being done through DSOs. Is that about right? 
Yeah, our, our data are different and we, we kind of lowball it, but our, our, our stat is 10%, right? So okay. there's a lot of people putting out numbers and to be clear, like ours, we think is an undercount because of the way, not to get into methodology, but the way we have to measure it, that it's consistent over time. We think we're like, we're, we're only measuring the very large DSOs, right? The Got 20 it. to 30 big ones. Um, what do you think but, it's going to be? But it's growing. The main yeah. point is it's growing. Right. Over if time. it's 10 now, yeah, however you measure, you measure it. I mean, other people measure it differently, but it's growing. Everybody who's measuring it shows it's growing. Prediction in 10 years, it'll be what percent? And in 20 years, and what I'd percent? say double. Double in 10 and double again in 20. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Just because um, of a few things, right? So we know that all else equal, women, non-white dentists, are much more likely to be in a DSO. That's all else equal, all else equal their age, their specialty, right? And we know dental school is shifting towards more women and non-white. So I think that in and of itself on the provider side, new grads, I think are gonna be disproportionately going to DSOs, right? Mm -hmm. On top of that, where the market is going, the things we just talked about, I feel the market trends are putting a lot more complexity in. And I think, again, the opportunities I see, you know, frankly, the larger you are as a practice, I think, in my view, the better placed you are to leverage some of those opportunities, right? So I think those combinations, both on the dentist side and on the market side, I think will continue to push and accelerate that DSO trend. Interesting. And it's interesting. I don't know if we can get into it, but the DSO space is really evolving too. I think that's an interesting point. In what way? Can you spend a minute or well, so? Well, a couple of things, right? So I would say, you know, DSO 1.0 maybe didn't focus as much on kind of the path to ownership, right? So it was, I would say, probably more churn of new dentists getting in, getting some experience, and then leaving, right? Mm hmm. From what I've seen, my observation is the last three, four years, right? The, the, certainly the large DSOs have really changed that. They're really, I think, adjusting and trying to accommodate this path to ownership. Secondly, the smaller mid-sized DSOs, a lot more of them are dentist-owned versus kind of owned by non-dentists or VC funds, et cetera. So I think dentists themselves are kind of getting together and making their own DSO, right? So. Right. You know, however you want to call all that, to me, it's kind of large group practice. So my point is it's evolving and, you know, you know, one DSO, you know, one. But mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that even the, comp the, the large ones are adjusting to what dentists want. And I feel that is also going to probably increase their hiring power. Interesting. Um, we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask a non-dental question to be my last question of the hour. Um, what are you streaming these days on Netflix and Amazon and et cetera? Or what podcasts are you listening to? Uh, I don't do a lot of podcasts. I'm, I'm largely reading online or magazines and books. Um, I don't know. I have a, we have a 12 year old and 10 year old. So I've, I've always been interested. Frozen? Like, in Sorry? Frozen? Oh, uh, no. I, I <laughs> by the way, to me, best Disney movie ever. Um, I, I play guitar and I, I love the, the theme song from the first, you know, let it go. Right on. Yeah. I think just, it's a great story. 
um, I'm happy they got away from kind of the princesses, mm -hmm. wait for the prince and all that junk, right? <laughs> um, you know, I have a daughter, so I love, anyways, it's not that, it would have been that three years ago. Got it. Um, but I don't know, I'm very interested in education policy, just because kind of the kids are living it and just my interest too in the social sectors. Um, I don't know, so I'm raising things about, you know, the, you know, the book about grit, right? How to raise resilient children. Um, I read another piece and uh, related to, you know, what's happened in higher ed, right? That's a fascinating evolution in the U.S. about how, how college financing has really changed kind of who's going to college and what the purpose of college is. And, um, so I don't know, that, that's what I'm doing. That's um, really uh, ex extre experiencing extreme change right now. Extreme change, It'll be yeah. very interesting to yeah. see what higher ed looks like in three years. Exactly. But honestly, I, I I don't read that much or listen. I, I tried to, you know, I, I try to unwind. I don't know. I try to play tennis. Uh, my kids play piano. I play guitar. I try to get them to sing with me and play with me as much as they're willing to. Um, but I don't know. Family time is, is, I mean, number one. It's easy to say that, but I really try to live it. Very cool. Well, Marco, thank you so much for spending this hour with us really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I look forward to uh, where dentistry heads and having you um, present the markers along the way. We really depend upon the research that you and the, uh, the ADA is doing. And uh, thank you um, for, for your time and thank you for all that you do. Thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Marco. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in. Don't want to miss an episode of the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast? Subscribe today on your favorite podcast app.